And now it's time for us to study God's life-transforming Word together. And today, we will be concluding our series on the grace of giving. And as I said at the outset, this series of teachings is not financially driven. It's financially focused. But the goal of this series is not addressing some budget deficit. God is providing for our needs. The goal of this series is to address a deficit in our souls that robs us of joy and dignity, significance, and identity. In this last message of the series, I've selected two portions of God's Word to serve as our foundational texts. The first, the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21, and then Acts chapter 20, verse 35, where the Apostle Paul quotes the teaching of Jesus. But first of all, listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 6. He said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then Paul in Acts 20, 35 said this, Jesus himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. I was hoping to find a catchy title for this final message in the series on the grace of giving, but I couldn't think of one. And so today's title is quite simply, The Rewards of Giving. That's where our focus is going to be, the rewards of giving. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, on this day which you have made, we covet a deeper desire for your word and a deeper knowledge of your word. And so, Father, by your Holy Spirit, empower me for teaching and preaching and empower us for understanding and reception and obedience so that our lives might conform to your purposes and your intent so that we might fulfill our destiny and live in abundance and joy and make a difference during our brief sojourn through this world. As always, we pray these things in total dependence upon the Holy Spirit, and we ask them in the name of our Lord and Messiah, the Lord Jesus. Amen and amen. And as we study God's Word together today, may the Lord be with you. We were designed to be givers. I made that observation at the beginning of this series, and I want to return to it today. We were designed, we were created, we were wired, we were programmed to be givers, 
because we're created in the image of God, the most generous soul in the universe. And yet, despite the fact that we are wired and designed for giving, and despite the fact that we as believers have confidence in God and in His Word and in His truth, I find that as followers of Jesus, we still struggle greatly in the area of giving. And we're not doing better than our ancestors of previous generations. We're doing worse. How is it that we can be confident in the Word of God, confident in God, and still struggle to become grace givers? I'd like to suggest it's primarily because the heart is easily seduced. It habitually forsakes the devotion for which it hungers, devotion to God, in favor of the deceptions that leave it empty. We forsake devotion. We embrace deception. That's why Tiger Woods' recent costly dalliances serve as something of a morality play that convicts us all, just like Nathan's saga convicted King David. At some point, we have all been unfaithful to God. At some point, we have all betrayed the eternal for some titillating moments between the sheets with materialism and with greed and with consumerism. And then, as is always the case, harsh reality sets in. And we discover that our illegitimate partner had a tattoo and the tattoo was an expiration date. Because you see, the Bible says the pleasures of sin only endure for a season. They fade quickly. They have a very short shelf life. And we also awaken to discover that we've been infected with some spiritually transmitted diseases like greed and fear and insecurity and debt. And what we need as the body of Christ is a good dose of truth therapy. Because the truth, when it's received and applied, still sets you free. The knowledge and practice of God's truth transforms the seduced heart into a satisfied heart. But notice, I said the knowledge and practice of God's truth. Without practice, we end up with a Christian vocabulary rather than a Christian experience, a Christian lifestyle, and a Christian witness. And one of the problems with the church in our cultural context is that we have this great biblical vocabulary, but we're not showing the world biblical experiences. And the Word says the kingdom of God doesn't come in mere words, but it comes in power. 
That's why I am encouraging you, every one of you, no matter what your income, no matter what your situation in life, I am encouraging every one of you to engage the Grace of Giving Project. I would like to see 100% participation in this project where we're asking you to anonymously pledge an increase in your annual giving to God's work through ACAC. And remember, that's what we're looking for you to put on those cards, the amount of the increase, not the amount of your total giving for the year. I enthusiastically want to encourage you to do that for the sake of your own soul as a protection against seduction. You need to affair-proof your heart. And this is one way to do it. The Grace of Giving project, I thought of this this week, is much like what the Steelers call an OTA, an organized team activity. Theirs are aimed at making them more proficient as a football team. This one is aimed at making you more mature as a follower of Jesus Christ. It's a practice session. But enthusiasm for practice hinges upon conviction of reward. We're willing to practice hard if we know there's some payoff on the other side of practice. And so today, in this final message, I want to focus in on the payoff, on the very real and tangible rewards of grace giving. And I want to remind you that God rewards grace giving. He is on record as saying He rewards our giving. I don't think any of us can fully grasp the full nature of his reward, the scope of his reward. But today, I want to offer you just a few examples of how God really does reward grace giving. First of all, giving sets us free. It sets us free from the prison of greed and materialism, a prison where we pay the rent. It's where we recover our identity and our joy. Living under the influence of materialism and consumerism is very much like living in a prison. You miss so much. You forfeit so much. You so limit your life. That's why any commitment to increase your grace-giving to trust God more in the area of finances will be immediately followed by intense spiritual warfare. Because Satan is convinced of things Jesus' followers are still debating. He knows that giving transforms the heart. He knows that giving bursts open the prison doors. He knows that giving advances the restoring work of God in this broken, sin-cursed, sin-sick world. And so he brings out all his heavy guns, fear, unbelief, greed, intimidation, worry, anxiety, to hinder us from becoming grace givers. He doesn't want to see us free. He's a liar 
and a murderer. Notice in our text today, our first text from Matthew's Gospel, Jesus didn't say that where your heart is, that's where your treasure will go. Jesus said, if we give our treasure, our hearts will follow. That's important to recognize the difference. Jesus didn't say, where your heart is, your treasure follows. No, he said, where you put your treasure, your heart will follow. It's true that God desires cheerful givers, but the progression isn't from being cheerful to being generous. The progression is from being generous to becoming cheerful. And Jesus' words rebut those who would suggest that to obey God without passion and joy is hypocrisy. That's nonsense. Obedience to God almost always initially unfolds in the presence of impulses to the contrary. We have to choose to obey God even though we don't particularly feel like it. And then when we do that, the feelings follow, the joy follows. And if we do it long enough, then we derive our greatest joy from obedience and the majority of our impulses are towards obedience. So let me put it differently. Have you ever prayed, Lord, help me to love you more? Lord, help me to care more about lost people. Lord, help me to love my brothers and sisters in the church at a deeper level. Lord, help me to care more about the poor. If you've ever prayed those things, Jesus in Matthew gives you the answer as to how you can see increased love for God, for the lost, for other believers, and for the poor. Begin to give your finances to God, to the lost, to missions, to the church, to your fellow believers, and to the poor. And where you put your treasure, your heart will follow. So many times we're asking God to do something for us in prayer when he's already told us if we will do certain things, we will see the desired outcome. There are times when God must feel like leaning over the banister of heaven and saying, quit asking me, follow the instructions. If you want to have a heart for the lost, give towards reaching the lost. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. The reality is your heart follows the money. So if you're giving 98% of your income to the world and 2% to God, how's your heart going to be led? Where's it going to incline? If you want to become the person that you think of, that you dream of, when you allow the Holy Spirit of God to shape those dreams, if you want to become more like Jesus, and when we think of the person we'd really like to be, that's what we're doing. We're thinking about Jesus. If you want to become that person, giving is a key. Because giving makes you more like Jesus. 
And that's the ultimate reward. I say that because you will never be more yourself as God intended you to be. You will never be more at peace with yourself. You will never be more content with yourself. You will never be more satisfied in life than when you are like Jesus. And quite simply, one key to becoming like Jesus is doing what Jesus does and Jesus gives all the time. He's still giving for you. The next reward, God ensures provision for you if you give. Giving ensures God's provision for you. Everybody loves to claim Philippians 4.19. My God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. But what many fail to recognize is that's not an unconditional promise for any and every believer. The context, verses 14 through 18, make it very clear that Paul offered that promise to grace givers in the city of Philippi specifically because when he had need, they stepped up and in grace and generosity, they supplied his need. And it was to them that he gave that promise. You supplied my need and the need of the kingdom. Now God is going to supply all of your need. Christians who refuse to contribute generously to the needs of God's people, the needs of God's work around the world, have no right claiming Philippians 4.19. No right whatsoever. And you can tell God he owes you that, but he'll tell you, no, I don't. But those who do give to the work of God rest well at night, confident in that promise because they know in light of their giving, God has got their back. And finally, grace giving brings an eternal reward that can't be lost. Unlike the prophets of BP stockholders, Unlike the bottom line or the annual income of a commercial fisherman on the Gulf Coast of Louisiana, God promises that giving brings an eternal reward that no one can tamper with, that can never be taken away from you, that can't be lost, that will never depreciate. There's a stubborn fable that circulates among believers. It's taken on a life of its own. It's the myth that somehow the resurrection at the second coming of Christ is a great equalizer. That in heaven, no matter how faithful or unfaithful we were on the earth, that in heaven we'll all have the same identical experience. All the distinctions will be wiped away. Friends, that is utter nonsense. Don't believe it. Jesus taught, Paul taught, the scriptures teach from beginning to end, reward for faithfulness. God is a rewarder of those who seek him 
and who serve him effectively and faithfully. Our conduct here determines our rewards there and even our roles there, our responsibilities. And heaven will be a place of unbridled joy, but of very marked differences. People say, well, what about the promise God will wipe all tears from our eyes? Friends, that describes a moment right after the judgment seat of Christ. Every believer has to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. It's not a judgment that determines your eternal destiny. It's a judgment for believers only where we either gain reward or forfeit reward. Every believer has to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And it's a judgment that will be a time of sobering recognition, especially if we've made bad choices. And every believer faces that. And the promise that God will wipe all tears from our eyes chronologically falls after the judgment seat of Christ, which means some believers, when they realized they forfeited their opportunity, they wasted their opportunities, they forfeited their eternal rewards, are going to weep, and it will take God to wipe the tears from their eyes. And they won't cry forever, thank God. But there will be weeping after the judgment seat of Christ. You see, Jesus warned us, don't amass treasures on earth, but in heaven. Here's what he was saying, and I want to give thanks to author and pastor Randy Alcorn for these concepts. Jesus was saying, it's not only true that earthly wealth may be lost, but that it will always be lost. If it doesn't leave us, and it does that easily, if it doesn't leave us while we live, excuse me, we will leave it when we die. But what we graciously give, we essentially carry with us into the future. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. And that reality should radically affect our stewardship and our investment strategy, no matter what our area of financial income. If I spend $200 on some toy, some gadget, that gadget is all I'm ever going to have to show for that $200. And that gadget will depreciate and it will eventually break and eventually it'll be in the garage sale or I'll pass it on to somebody if it has a long shelf life, but it'll never be anything more than what it is the moment I purchase it. But if I invest $200 in missions and through that investment, somebody that we have sent to Africa is able to lead a family to Christ and I see that family in God's eternal heaven. That return on my investment is something that I will be enjoying a million years from now. You see, giving makes heaven 
an even more exciting place. If you really understand God's Word, we should be looking forward to heaven not just because it means we'll be done with the troubles of the world, but because there we're going to receive our reward for all of our faithful service to God. It's payday. It sort of begs the question, how much have you sent on ahead? And a final word for those of you who think, well, I'll wait and I'll do my giving at death through my estate. Let me remind you that while that will accomplish something for the kingdom of God, God is on record as saying he rewards faith, and it takes no faith to leave your money when you die because you've got to leave it whether you want to or not. And if it doesn't require faith, then there won't be a reward. I heartily encourage planned estate giving. I think every believer ought to be thinking about what they're going to do for the kingdom of God with their estate. But estate giving should never be a substitute for giving now. It should just be the extension of a life of gracious, generous giving. Otherwise, you will forfeit the joy of the Lord now and your reward in eternity. See, when I get to heaven, I don't want to just walk in by the skin of my teeth with no reward. And people there aren't going to be boasting about their rewards. In fact, if we receive crowns, we'll cast them at Jesus' feet in an act of recognition. It's all about him. He made it possible. But I've often said when it comes moment to cast the crown, I don't want to be empty-handed. I want to have a crown to cast. And so will you. There are countless rewards awaiting us on the other side of grace giving. That's why I said at the beginning of this series, it's not about increasing the bottom line of the church. It's about increasing your maturity, your joy, your abundance, your dignity, your significance, your witness, your status in Christ. And if you don't participate in the Grace of Giving project, you're just blowing off a glorious opportunity to become the person you really want to be. So in light of the rewards, let me leave you with this closing thought. New way, perhaps, to think of it. God doesn't want us to suppress our desire to acquire. He wants us to redirect it towards the eternal and discover the rewards of faith. That desire you feel to acquire something, God put that there, not so that you could acquire junk, but so that you could acquire treasure in heaven. Redirect it there. Do your soul a favor. Give. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we've heard the information, now it's time for application. And I pray everyone under the sound of my voice, and that includes me, would respond in faith to the opportunity that we have to grow in the grace of giving and discover our real identity 
joy, abundance, and to make a great difference in the world. Lord, teach us the grace of giving. Make us a generous community of faith in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.